Hi everyone, and welcome to this episode of Creativity Sucks, a podcast from Creative Review magazine, which looks at the challenges and joys of life in the advertising and design industries. I'm Eliza Williams, CR's editor, and I'll be your host for this show. For this episode, we're looking at creative education. Now, obviously, this is a vast topic, so we're going to focus this conversation on how we can do creative education differently. We've seen a multitude of new formats enter the market in recent years, from online courses led by industry experts to new initiatives that aim to bring more diverse voices into the industry. We will discuss what works and why, and what more the education establishments and the design and ad industries could be doing to help set people up for a long creative career. To help me on this quest, I have three brilliant guests. Ali Owen, founder of Brixton Finishing School, which aims to bring underrepresented communities into the industry. Derek Yates, Associate Professor and Head of Creative Lab at Ravensbourne University in London. And designer and author Ian Wharton, who is visiting lecturer at Arts University Bournemouth, an advisory board member of DNAD Shift, plus has also recently launched his own online course. Welcome to the show, everyone. Hi. 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 Brilliant. Thank you for joining us, or joining me, even. Um, to start us off, I thought it would be great if you could just give me a little potted history of your kind of background and experiences in creative education and sort of explain where you are now, because you're all at quite different kind of places. Um, essentially, it would be good to understand how you fit into the ecosystem of education, if that makes sense. Um, Ali, I'm going to start with you, if that's okay. That's great. Hi, I'm Ali. I'm the founder of Brixton Finishing School. I'm seven years into my journey into creative education. Prior to that, I was in the advertising industry for about 25 years. And then about seven years ago, I had an epiphany that involved Katie Hopkins. <laughs> I may be aware of her work. Um, I was working at a really big newspaper group. They employed Katie Hopkins. I thought, I can't work here anymore. Not if they've employed her. Somebody's got to change the system and get different voices in. Um, so I went on a bit of a journey and I set up what was originally a very small London project that connected under-resourced and underrepresented talent with uh, incredible training in the creative advertising and tech industries and placed them directly into roles and employee partners. Um, that over the last seven years has scaled dramatically from 24 students to this year, the footprint's about 103,000 people. And we work with 14 to 30 year olds and women over 45. And essentially we're about employability. So everything we do is designed to give those who are under-resourced and underrepresented the skills and opportunity they need to break down the barriers that are preventing them getting into the industry. Brilliant. And the, it's very timely, really, isn't it, Brixton fin Finishing School? Because I feel seven years also sort of coincides with the point where the industry seems to kind of have acknowledged the lack of diversity and the need for change. Uh, would you agree with that? Do you know what? If I'm going to be honest, I would say there is lots of talk about it. And there is about a third of the industry that have got behind change. What I would say is the kind of market forces of the last couple of months where the markets have collapsed, essentially, you know, it's really tough out there. 
have really revealed those who are doing performative diversity funding, because we're entirely funded by corporate sponsors, and those who are really in it for the long term. You know, when you're talking about changing real structural challenges, you know, when you look at the makeup of the industry, it's really unbalanced. It's going to take years to kind of actually make it look and sound and feel like the actual citizens of our country. You can't be just dipping your toe in for a year or two when the markets are good. You have to be like long-term committed. Yeah, indeed. I guess you have a good inside knowledge of the sort of goodies and baddies maybe of this. Um... Everybody's on a different stage of their journey. And also if you're, you know, if you're VC owned or you've got shareholders to report to and they want to take something off the budget, DEI is probably the first thing they look at. And that's because essentially those people or those kind of part of the business don't recognize the value of it. Um, so I know there's lots of chat. Would I say that people understand it's business critical? Probably not if you're taking money out. Yeah, because we're talking about long-term stuff. Derek, you were about to say something, I think. It's business critical, right? And that's what the industry needs to understand. I was going to say, for me, every single, you know, Deloitte, KPG, everybody has shown that the more diverse your workforce is, the better profits, the better work you make. I mean, Deloitte's got this amazing stat about innovation where if you've embraced D&I, your workforce are 83% more innovative. Now, in a creative industry where you're supposed to be coming up with new amazing ways to kind of create engagement and impact, you know, that's an incredibly compelling reason to get your house in order. Uh, yeah, but there seems to be a bit of a stumbling this year just because the markets aren't behind us anymore. Indeed. So, Derek, I'm going to come to you. How how much of this is coming up in, in Ravensbourne? And can you talk a little bit about what you're what you're doing there in terms of how you're set up and so on? Yeah, of course. Um, hi. Uh, yeah, I, Ravensbourne has kind of been at the forefront of of kind of promoting inclusivity for for many years, actually. And I and I would say this, wouldn't I? But I think we're ahead of the game in in terms of what other universities are doing. I've kind of been working in this area for kind of 30, 30 years. I've been involved in in education for 30 years. I started um, working in education in, in local secondary schools in, in Hackney, uh, where I was born. And I've worked at every level. I've worked uh, in further education. I've worked on foundation courses. Uh, I've worked at degree level. And and I've worked at the UAL, I've worked at Winchester School of Art, and I've worked at, and now working at Ravensbourne. And there's two kind of themes, really, that I've developed in my educational career. One of them is 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 trying to, is an understanding that, that our industry is not very representative. And it, that comes right from my first job where I was working for a sound system, designing, designing kind of flyers and, and promotional material. And my tutors at college didn't want to have didn't want to see it didn't want to look at it they, they they were they they didn't take it seriously because it was kind of a culture that they didn't understand all the way all the way through kind of working in in an fe college in in southeast london and kind of sitting in on a contextual studies lesson where you know the the tutor is talking about dead white men really you know to to a, a group of students that where there wasn't a single white person in in the audience and I got together with um, a, a writer called Lloyd Bradley, 
and we redesigned the contextual studies curriculum so it kind of reflected the students um experience anyway sorry i could talk about that for a long time but i now work at ravensbourne which is which is fantastic um university that's that's always tried to work really closely with with industry and i'm i'm kind of currently the head of creative lab and creative lab is a creative agency within ravensbourne we kind of we oversee careers provision at ravensbourne uh, we take on commercial projects and we work with people like the Obama Foundation. So my colleague, Lawrence Latte, just come back from Chicago where he was, um, we were up for an Emmy for a, for a project we did uh, with Ed Jordan, uh, the Obama Foundation and Ravensbourne. We took um, kids from the south side of Chicago, brought them to London, took kids from the east end of London and, and, and took them to the south side of Chicago. And they worked on a project together for Fair Jordan that was presented in Brixton, funnily enough, Ali, at the Future Forward Festival. Um, <laughs> so um, I wish I'd seen it. It's amazing. It was really brilliant. And we've just finished another Obama Foundation project where we um, worked with Nestle um, to create a, a, some, a kind of new packaging concept for Nestle, which was about kind of breakthroughs within culture. So, so yeah, so so... I think inclusivity is kind of very much at the heart of of what we do. But I, you know, interestingly, I've always felt like working with industry is is a really good way, you know, to create education that's relevant to all of our students. Because you know what, they all kind of want to get a job at the end of it. So, and and I think that I think people like myself and Ali can talk all day long about kind of you know diversifying the industry, but but lots of the barriers are economic. You know, and and I think that we, I think it's quite an important thing that that we need to consider. Really, a lot of it is just about whether our students can afford to come to university and do the qualifications that they need to get into the industry. And at that point, sorry, I'll be quiet because I could go on all day. <laughs> and this seems a good moment, Ian, for you to come in. Uh, I guess particularly from the point of view of DNAD shift, but maybe also you have other observations on the financial side of things. Yeah, well, I guess for, from a, my perspective is is mixed, I suppose. So uh, over the past 20 years of, of my professional life spent mostly in design and innovation, I suppose you could say, most of that has been on, I've been on the hiring side of education, as in um, how do we work with the best institutions in the UK to make sure graduates get the opportunities and the visibility and everything that goes along with that. Um, and there are barriers there and and that's why it's like I, I love working with institutions like Ravensbourne because they have such amazing programs. Um, I still am very much of the view that creative education should be viewed as something that's done in joint venture with the industry as opposed to the industry just kind of taking a back seat and waiting for all the benefits of what all our educators do. I don't, I don't think that's the right way at all of approaching it. I don't think most agencies or companies do view it that way, but I think it's definitely um, the industry definitely should be more involved, and I think in large part people do want to be. Um, so that's kind of I suppose one side, and then over the twenty years I've I've visited most of the universities in the UK. I, I give guest lectures often at a lot of them. I used to do this quite frequently, Ravensbourne even over the years, um, and then I suppose my world right now I'm I'm in a venture capital backed startup. Now I'm I'm acutely aware that that world 
often goes hand in hand with songs that are proudly sung about just don't bother with university, drop out, go and build your thing. You have no barriers to starting a business or building a product. I'm on the other side of the fence. I, I still think there is tremendous value in higher education for creativity. I think it should be a celebration of discovery. I definitely think it's it's worthwhile when it's in the right places. But then I also know firsthand the impact of things like shift. So I, I've I've been DNA D shifts what they, what's referred to as their resident ECD, uh, which means I just support the cohort throughout the program. I've been doing that for the past six or seven years, and I, I just know that the people who go through that would struggle to gain access to the companies, the clients, the insights, the skills, if that program and programs like like what Ali's built, if if they didn't exist, I don't know what their options would be. Um, so the great news is these things exist. The, the bad news is that, well, DNAD shift takes a couple of thousand students every year. And as far as I understand, the best part of 300,000 applied to creative higher education last year. So yeah, a big question is there's no denying their, their ability to support underrepresented groups. The question is, how do we scale them? Yes, that's very much one of my questions. And I guess alongside that, I think um, it's also interesting to consider how do you scale them into areas that are not as well served? Because we're talking about diversifying the industry. I still feel like an awful lot of these programs are very London focused. And I look around the UK and while the industry is beginning to move into more places in the UK, I still feel like the focus of a lot of the educational opportunities are either universities or their in London and I wonder about that of how do you scale it across to other parts of the UK I mean Ali maybe you you've got some thoughts on this because I'm guessing you you've addressed this despite our non diplomat saying we're Brixton we're actually a national program series of programs Brixton is just like the family name of the programs so in COVID when COVID hit in 2020 um, I launched the Ad Academy can see what I did there. Sneakily took the word advertising and shoved it with a word that was educational. So we created the Ad Academy, which is like a national free learning platform that also does virtual lectures, etc., designed to encompass the whole of the UK. Uh, and that's actually our biggest program now, apart from obviously our schools outreach program, with which deals with that kind of fourteen to eighteen year old haven't heard of creative creative industries at all. Um, so for me, I've always been about overcoming. When you look at social mobility, it is about overcoming location poverty and opportunity poverty. Um, when you look at the price of living in London, 82% of our kind of students surveyed, the finances are the biggest thing that gets them. So it's not only about opening up opportunity nationally. So you'll do the Ad Academy. You may be able to do a virtual internship where you can save up your deposit for a London flat. But realistically, until the industry stops being so London-centric, at the current kind of rent prices, I don't really see a solution unless the industry starts supporting subsidised housing. And Saatchi's does that. But they've got this amazing thing called Saatchi Home, where they actually um, subsidise our graduates for the first year of accommodation. So they arrange the accommodation, they pay the deposits, so that means whether you're in Grimsby, Hartlepool, Glasgow, Merthyr Tidville, 
you can rock up in London and that first year's completely taken care of. And for me, that kind of assistance is making a real difference because there's no point getting qualified if you can't manage to get the um, deposit for a London flat together, like flat share. It's the long-term thing, isn't it? Always has to be considered. Derek, does this come up at Ravensbourne? I'm guessing it does for people coming to study there. Absolutely. And um, and actually quite a lot of our students commute from outside of London. Um, I think I think that universities absolutely need to do more about kind of branching out with their program. I think it's interesting. I was kind of listening to, to what you were saying earlier and what Ali was saying. And, and there was this assumption you know, that that these kind of more inclusive schemes need to exist outside of the traditional university structure. And I know Ali does a really good job at kind of getting funding from her program from the private sector. But but I suppose the the traditional universities are kind of all across the country. They 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 have incredible facilities. They, you know, they're amazing institutions. Problem is that they offer a very one dimensional qualification set which is a three-year degree largely and and they don't offer enough different ways that you can experience the the kind of educational benefits of of going to university and also I think that they don't largely don't engage with industry enough you know like I think that there is such an opportunity at the moment because let's face it I think higher education is kind of broken particularly in the creative sector for lots and lots of reasons you know some of which lie at the uh, uh, lie with the universities, you know, like, but some of which are about the kind of underfunding of, of creative education in our schools. But sometimes when something is at a stress point, that's the point where you really start to be creative and innovative in, in, in changing things. And I think there are, there are lots of op- opportunities here for different, for universities to offer different kinds of education, you know, like different ways of accessing education, online options, blended options, you know, long courses, short courses, courses that are kind of differentiated to to students' needs. But the problem is, is that lots of universities, there's no kind of incentive for universities to, to do that, actually, because their main funding pool comes from the 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 kind of subsidised student loan scheme, really, which is about, which gives us our kind of main main business, you know. But I, but I think certainly at Ravensbourne it's something that we that we we're, we're trying to look at you know and I and I think the government or you know the awarding bodies you know need need to kind of support that you know because I think there's definitely we definitely see students who don't last the three years on our courses that maybe don't apply for the three years of our courses because because they just look at the amount of debt they're going to rack up and. And it doesn't, it, they realise they just can't afford to take on that level of debt. And they haven't got the confidence that the more privileged students have because of their background and the support structure that's around them, you know. It's something that, sh- that universities need to address, you know, they need to tackle. And, that, and I think they should work with industry to try and tackle that, to try and come up with alternatives, things that feel more relevant, things that, that offer a kind of quicker um return on investment you know this is kind of the everything of the discussion for me so I'm, I'm being deliberately reductive here but generally speaking higher education is three years long if you're studying a specialism if you're doing any kind of medical degree it's longer if you're in scotland it's four years but typically speaking it's three years every student i speak to uh 
wants to get going as quickly as possible. So that's that's there's a desire there, and there is there's the elephant in the room. What's what's the average that a student is indebted today? Is about twenty seven thousand pounds, and that's just tuition, I think. So it's it's not small sums of money. It definitely wasn't that when I was in university. But the the problem that this is the this is the challenge in my view, which is I look at a program like DNA Shift, which I think is exceptional, and it's short but it's intensive. It's five months long. It's a night school. It's pretty brutal to go through, but but it's successful. I think seventy plus percent of the students that come out of it get a get a job in in their chosen uh, discipline or in their chosen industry. That the balance here is well. One of the main benefits of creative education is to allow you discovery or time for discovery of the thing that you really want to do to know that, uh, you know what, I, I'm a designer, but actually this part of design doesn't doesn't interest me. I want to wake up in the morning and do this thing over here. Or I want to be as multidisciplinary as possible. And actually three years without the stakes of clients and payroll and everything else, that's a perfect environment to figure out where am I most proficient? Where do I have innate ability or innate desire? And three years is a pretty good, pretty good duration to figure that out. But then maybe five months is as well. So I think part of the challenge is do we do we have some incorrect perception that devalues a shorter duration of education? As in, well, have they had time to hone craft? Have they had time to discover their thing? And I would say that we should park all of those worries because what we need to give is sure people some time for discovery exposure to as much of the creative industry as possible but we shouldn't forget the impact of private enterprise and personal industry in evenings and weekends because most students graduates young people are exploring the limits of their creativity anyway so the 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 duration versus impact discussion i think the industry should soften their stance on slightly um and we and we for sure should find more accessible ways of people discovering their their creative breadth and their desire and ability to be multidisciplinary if they choose ian do you mean when you say about the industry lowering their uh, boundaries on this do you mean that people expecting a degree essentially to enter the industry because it feels to me that so I totally agree with you that having much more flexibility in the type of courses and the length of courses but it feels like we're, we're caught in a, a sort of system as Derek was kind of saying that you know the, the way everything is organized that's structured around degrees but is that what you mean that it, the industry needs to be a bit more open to other ways in? I'll speak very openly. I have never once asked anyone who I've hired or interviewed over the course of the past at least 15 years as, as someone who was hiring uh, over the course of 20 years. I've never once asked someone what they got in their degree. No one's ever shown me. I've never cared. I was never asked in the, I don't know, six or seven jobs I've had over the past 20 years. The thing that matters for uh, astute hirers and people who build high-performing teams is body of work, ambition, and in my personal view, breadth of skill set. So I think actually the degree, the, the actual formal qualification at the end is a, I suppose some people might assign value to it from a perspective of, well, you saw the thing through, you've probably, there's like, there's probably discipline, work ethic behind that, but actually it's body of work. So I think 
there there needs to be more ownership on the industry to help shape what that outcome should be regardless of duration i suppose is is my point i'd like to agree 100 percent there with with ian actually i uh, but but <laughs> i think my experience is that that a degree the value of a degree is not in the kind of a plus b equals c here's some skills here's here's how here's how you do a live brief where you go you're going to be successful in the industry there is a kind of accumulative value of experience there that i think we need to be careful not to kind of underestimate and i'm not saying that that always takes three years but I think some of the discussion I've heard around, particularly online learning, has this idea that you can you can kind of um, it's about commodification, isn't it? It's about it's it's this this idea that education can be broken down into kind of saleable chunks and kind of that you buy off the shelf and all of a sudden you'll you'll have all of the things that you need. And I think what it does is it it doesn't factor in the experience, being part of a community, being provoked, being challenged learning through kind of difficult situations, all of which do come from a degree because that's your kind of three years journey, but can be done in lots and lots of other ways. But I, but I worry about this idea that a, the, a designer is a kind of set of computer skills or, or you, know, a set, you know, a set of kind of things that you learn by, you know, having a short exposure to people in the profession. You know, like I think there is a, a cumulative value of it, of of a big range of experiences that m- makes a designer grow. Couldn't couldn't agree more. Yeah, and I, I think that's why it's a shame that the dropout culture in certain cultural discourse gets so much attention. For sure, there's really successful people that that did a day in uni and then went, "This isn't for me. I'm going to go and build a business." Fine. Uh, it's more prevalent in the startup world than in the design and creative world, arguably. I, I don't have any data on that, but. I would assume that's the case. Um, but it's all the imperceptible stuff. It's all the stuff beyond the formal qualification, the time you had with other people, the, the the communication skills you built during that time, the learning from your peers, the being exposed to um, other other parts of the design world, the creative world, when someone comes in and said, hey, have you seen this film? Those discussions are, are difficult to have virtually. I don't think they're impossible. But again, it's not... And maybe the maybe the answer is it, it's just not binary. It's just not well. You don't have to be in there for three years physically, and and maybe it's not well. The answer, the silver bullet, isn't everything's virtual and it's all a digital product. It's it's a balance. The only the challenge. I mean, the university I went to was in Cumbria. It was it was Carlisle um, City. It was Cumbria Institute of the Arts, which is now part of the University of Cumbria, and I loved it. It was a super broad program we covered design multimedia what, what it was referred to at the time uh, animation advertising visual effects but we were miles away from quote the industry and we never had people come and visit us we never got chance to go and ha- go and see design studios in london we didn't take part in dnad new blood or the festival uh and I, that was massively limiting for us as a student body all of that could have been sold virtually. I think it's interesting. And I think that responsibility now, perhaps on universities to make that happen now, which I, you know, I don't know when you went to university in, but I'm guessing maybe that, you know, the connections weren't there in the way they are now. 
to do that. But it does sometimes feel like, nonetheless, some universities haven't moved that tight with those times. I mean, just at Creative Review, I find it very frustrating that degree shows aren't all online, for example, or that access to work isn't all online. And it seems almost this year that it's gone backwards that because COVID made a lot go online. I'm guessing this is all about resource and possibilities, but it does make it harder for people to be connected. For me, it's just all about accessibility. I kind of, you know, I've listened, listening to what you said, I do, it sounds like just such a beautiful alchemy, the idea that you can physically be with people and learn for three years. I suppose the reality is, though, for thousands and thousands of incredibly talented young people is that's not an option for them. So it's like, how do we kind of create an alternative? And obviously, you know, DNA, do shift, does that, et cetera. It's just, yeah, is it fit for purpose, this idea that you the only way you can manage to have a proper creative education is to spend three years in a room with lots of other people? Because then that's incredibly exclusive. It's not inclusive at all anymore in the current system. And that just really concerns me. So I suppose what I'd be looking at is for the industry, obviously we work with the industry, to actually create some of that ability to rotate round in your first job and experiment with different things. Because the reality is unless, you, unless you're earning a wage, you're not going to be able to do any of this stuff. I agree, but I, I think it's it would be... Um, well, I, this is certainly my view. I think it's unfair for industry to not do more work to help figure this out. So, but what I will say is, I, I've not met any department head or CEO of an agency in the creative industry who doesn't want to support the outcome of education. Some are just better at operationalizing than than others. I, I think should some shouldn't come close to to this as a role, but some definitely should, and some just aren't that good at it. And I would argue it's for no reason other than what's often referred to as the bystander effect, which is some people in the creative industry just assume someone else is doing that job somewhere else. And it's it's just not the case. The industry needs to be doing way more, whether it's funded programs like you mentioned from Saatchi, which by the way, I didn't know about, and I think that's awesome, or it's helping write really awesome, and or writing curriculum or, or creating live briefs or giving... Or, or gracing these students with access to clients so they actually know what it feels like to speak to these people when there are when there are, or is something on the line, when there is a financial commitment on, on one side of the table. And I think too often the industry views it as, as being a, a, a benefactor of everyone else's hard work. And I'm like, no, 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 joint venture. We are both responsible for the, the profits, so to speak, and the costs of doing this. And... What I will say, if there are educators listening to this, like email me because I know a ton of people who are willing to help and solve this stuff. And if it means we have to band together and figure out a uh, a way we can start a fund for these, like every all of these things are entirely possible. I think it's just no one knows where to start or someone assumes it's being done elsewhere. But we, we have to think way more creatively there are untapped potential for funding models within creative education like alumni groups or creating university spin-outs uh, for, for creative departments which sounds complicated but hate to break it to the to people that this life sciences do this all the time oxbridge universities spin out companies that have 
I think over the past decade had investment to the tune of 10 billion pounds. Now they, they are imperfect because bureaucracy, bureaucracy sometimes kills them and founding teams sometimes get, get left with tiny amounts of equity. All of that's solvable. But we, we need a radical shift in the funding of education. And, and there are so many options on the table. But I think the industry needs just needs to step up a bit more and not, not be just a, a benefactor of everyone else's hard work. I think education needs to take an equal responsibility there. I think I think I, I agree with everything Ian's saying that, you know, industry could do more. But I think one of the reasons industry isn't doing more is because education isn't approaching industry in the right way. My, my perception from working in education over a long period of time of everywhere I've worked apart from Ravensbourne is that, is that industry needs to give us something. Well, I think education and industry need to learn together you know and 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 actually you know what about what about universities supporting industry with business development what about what about um universities uh help uh, uh, supporting industry in terms of research and development you know bringing students into that in into that into those projects you know there there's there's a thing called knowledge exchange which I'm not sure if, uh, how many people are aware of it, but the government is is really pushing these kind of relationships, and and universities can draw down a lot of funding um, by partnering up with industry to develop products, to develop services, to look at new ways of doing business. You know, like and they can bring students into that into those projects in in a really brilliant way. And to answer Ali's question earlier about how does about accessibility, well. You know, I I agree with you, but universities, um, if universities were more flexible in the way in the in the way they structured their courses, students could be working while they're doing university courses. You know, and we we could be helping students find relevant jobs that that feed into their that feed into their um, into their education. You know, like I I think that I think there's just so much more that that we both could do but i think education needs to take a responsibility and i think we're trying to do that at ravensbourne but i'm bound to say that aren't i um but certainly other places i've i've worked i've worked at they see they see industry as a kind of a nuisance or you know something that is kind of not part of the the kind of higher job that 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 they're doing within the hallowed halls of academia and it shouldn't be like that I've I've always said you know education needs to learn with industry industry needs to learn with edu education and if we really embrace that and brought students into that dynamic you could do some really amazing exciting things I'm just going to jump in and there's one thing that I I quite like to discuss which I think is relevant to all of the things you've just been saying which is also sort of looking at education as not just a kind of pathway into the industry but also what role it has over your career so that, you know in various careers you're constantly having to do new courses do new training do uh new like look at new approaches in order to kind of maintain your job to some extent none of this exists in the creative industries and we also have a a industry which often is very uh youth focused uh, with a lot of people moving out of the industry as they get older i mean does that does part of this revolution in the way we think about education also include 
more structured opportunities for people to do education as their career develops and to be give you know things like new technologies obviously come in but also just new ways of thinking over time um ali i know you you do work with um with old old people i presume sort of maybe who are coming back into the industry yeah or never worked before if you're a woman over 45 and you're of a certain generation the odds of you having a career especially if you're over 50 are quite low you'll have had to do caring duties um so you'll probably get in your first job your first break in your late 40s or as you say you're a returner or you're coming from a different sector so we did a program called visible start which was funded by wpp which 600 women have done which is about yeah converting all that life experience you've got, you know, I've always, there's a really good quote, you know, if you can get a toddler to eat broccoli, you can certainly sell an idea to a client. And they're like, yeah, essentially, yeah. And all that stuff that you've learned in your life, just being alive, is gold. Because as we say, we're an incredibly disbalanced industry. I think only 3% of us are over 50 yeah, the majority of stuff is bought by people over 50. So the work we create and the work, you know, we make, um, yeah, is made by people who have no lived experience of that particular target market. And I'm not saying that's, you know, you can't empathise, but you need to have actually some, you know, a whole intergenerational workplace, I think. And I do think, for me, I've been very lucky throughout my career to be constantly offer training and development and that's part of your growth potential isn't it if you're creative you're naturally i think curious and open-minded and you want to find out new things so i think it's yeah you don't want to stagnate do you no and i think part of the boom in online courses that we've seen and obviously Ian, you've just launched your own one but uh, is i think is perhaps in answer to that is is that there's a recognition that people maybe need confidence boosting, maybe want to just be fresh. I mean, there's obviously a, a commercial aspect to those courses because they cost varying amounts of money, um, but they all cost money. But uh, but I think that they do seem to be coming in because people want that. Um, I mean, Ian, maybe you can talk briefly about your, your course. Was that in, inspired by a recognition of this need? It was, yeah, so the, the course is literally to help people sell ideas, which, and it, and it was born for like a really simple reason, which is having spent 20 years in the industry working with students, there is a gap in, in we're letting, I, my view is we were just letting creative and entrepreneurial down with a particular skill, which is the pitching bit, the selling, the, the articulating of an idea, purely because not by design, it's a very exclusionary theater of learning, which is it's typically left to the very senior people in the company. New people are only exposed to those live moments of selling an idea through very small increments. And because of that, certainly from my experience, most creative and entrepreneurial people found the, the process of selling their idea incredibly unpleasant. And it's, a, it's an intense assault on your senses. And it shouldn't be. It should be fun. It should be something that you feel prepared for, regardless of the outcome. And I, I, it was it was born out of that, which is I just think uh, there are some parts of learning that are inaccessible for no reason other than uh, we they they get obfuscated from the daily job and the P and L of an agency, and it's hard to 
to operational operationalize learning sometimes so it, i did it purely from a a gap in an accessibility perspective and and also i'm very clear about this on the course which is hey this isn't the way this isn't the only way of doing this this is another tool for your armory and if you if it resonates with you brilliant and if it doesn't that's okay too yeah no it's very interesting i think um people do desire these kind of moments to like i say for confidence building but also just to feel inspired by thinking differently about things which again i think coming back to all your points about where industry can can assist more it does feel like an obvious place with careers over time i'm very conscious of time so i'm gonna <laughs> just draw us to a close by by just asking you all if there's just one thing right now that you would change i know these sort of questions can be quite hard but i'm going for it anyway what would it be if you can change something tomorrow what would it be derek what would you change <laughs> it's a good question metrics I think the the ways we uh, measure excellence and achievement in higher education, in education full stop, are not fit for purpose. Um, I could get in trouble saying that, actually. Um, you know, like, so, so you know, the lead tables we create to, to judge the achievement of universities um, favour a certain kind of education, which is by its nature exclusive. I was once told... A Russell Group University when I suggested that we set up a fund um, to to support kind of excluded groups into into the course that the courses that I was working on should I say this um, <laughs> I was I was told that there was no benefit to the league table position by doing that you know because you just got lots of students who had kind of didn't have as good qualifications so it didn't look as good on the league tables and and I think there's lots of that within higher education I think I think we need to change assessment. I think every degree should be pass and fail personally. Um, but you know, like the grades, grades are such a problem. You know, I think I think we need to t we need to change the way we measure the value of 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 research. You know, it favours certain kinds of research that aren't with industry and and don't have a kind of relevance to 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 kind of the commercial marketplace, which they need to have. You know, I could go on, but lots of the way, lots of the metrics that are really influential in shaping how I, higher education is are not inclusive. I'd go so far as to say that, you know, uh, yeah, they're, they're, they, they disadvantage lots and lots of groups of people. And if we really want to kind of make education that's exclusive, we need to look at the infrastructure of education. You know, it's like every university wants to be more inclusive, but sometimes the 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 metrics to uh, that define how their achievement uh, is judged don't allow them to do that. Ali, I'm going to come to you next. What what would you change? I'm going to say all creative education should be free, flexible, and available for all in my little nirvana. Yeah, so it's fully funded doesn't matter who you are, you can go and do it. Because I reckon the economic output of this country would be massively improved if we actually created a meritocracy rather than the current um, oligarchy we seem to be existing in. Ian, I'm going to finish with you. What, what would you change? If I could wave a magic wand, I, I just want, I think creative education, all of it should be multidisciplinary. I think specialism producing education is precarious especially in the world we live in now 
We need creative people who can turn their hand to unforeseen technology, markets, customer or audience expectations. And specialism producing education assumes students already know what they're good at or what they love doing the most, which is just inaccurate. So we need big, open, ambiguous learning. We need to encourage it, celebrate it, not penalize people who want to be educated that way. Uh, that would be my wish. What's clear from this whole conversation is there's sort of systematic change that needs to occur, really, which obviously is inc incredibly hard. But there's, I feel like we've actually touched on loads of ideas of ways that could happen and ways that industry could help that happen. I'm going to leave it here. I'm going to say huge thank you to Ali, Derek and Ian for taking part in the podcast and sharing so many ideas, which hopefully will spark off lots of other ideas and conversations as well beyond this. Um, this is our final episode in the third series of Creativity Sucks. So we're going to take a break for a few months, but there's still plenty of other episodes to listen back to in the meantime, which you can find via the Creative Review website at creativereview.co.uk or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you again to everyone for taking part today and thanks for listening.